most people um, today who don't follow Jesus probably think that Jesus is the first name of Mr. Christ, right? Um, or maybe it's just like their go-to curse word when they're frustrated. Um, but in this season, we just imagine baby Jesus in the cute little manger. Um, and for some people, he's like, you know, a spiritual guru of some kind. And we did a whole series on actually misconceptions of Jesus back in the summer that we called Oddity, uh, where we looked at Jesus's teachings and his actions that kind of like go against the grain and frustrate our paradigms uh, for our pre-understandings of who Jesus is. But today we have an opportunity just to focus on his name, Jesus, and what that means. So again, the Hebrew name that his mom would have called him was Yeshua, which is, in the Hebrew, it's a contraction of a couple of words, as most Hebrew names are. It's a couple of words pushed together, and it means the Lord saves. That is what Yeshua means. And it's a different form of the noun version, which is salvation, which is just pronounced Yeshua, so a different emphasis. Um, And it was kind of common back then in the first century. It was a common name. And it was also common as like a concept, you know, like concept names, concept words that have become names today, like grace or faith or something like that. Uh, I know plenty of people named grace or faith. And Yeshua was actually a nickname for another very common Jewish name at the time, which was Yehoshua or Joshua, right? So that is one of the most common Jewish names of all time. At any given time, if you're in a room full of Jewish people and you say, hey, Josh, there's like 10 guys that are like, oh, hi. Uh, And that was true in the first century as well. The first century uh, Jewish historian named Josephus actually mentions 20 other important people named Yeshua who are all contemporaries of Jesus. So there were probably a lot more non-famous Yeshuas. So what makes this Jesus, this Yeshua so special? Why are we here 2,000 years later singing hundreds of songs where the word Jesus is the climax of the song? What makes him different from any of the other guys? Can you imagine how weird that would be if we were singing like, there is power in the name of Josh, right? (laughs) It's like just a nickname for this longer name. Why is Jesus so much more uh, important? Why does his name actually have power? Why do we believe that? In the, in the book of Isaiah in the Old Testament, it says that this Savior that Isaiah was predicting who would come and save Israel, this Messiah, would actually have nothing about him that would make us want to be attracted to him or think that he was so special. And that includes his name. His name was not, hey, look over here, I'm the Messiah. <laughs> it was probably the most common and unassuming name you could have possibly picked, and yet it reveals exactly who he is and what he came to do. The Lord saves. So as we begin the book of Mark this month, as Ryan said, we're focusing in on these titles. And since the book of Mark does not have a narrative about Jesus' birth, we're focusing on the gospel of Matthew uh, this morning, where it zooms in on the significance of this name. And the source of the book of Mark is actually traditionally the apostle Peter, who wasn't really around for the birth of Jesus, so he doesn't include all those details. So where did the story of Jesus' birth come from? 
most likely his family, right? <laughs> That's where birth stories come from. If you ever like talk to a mom, they'll probably tell you their birth story, right? Moms like telling other moms their birth stories and pretty much anyone else who will listen. So you have to know, imagine that Jesus' mom told his birth story a few times and imagine being one of Jesus' brothers growing up with him and like every time his mom tells the birth story about this like virgin conception, it's like so much more important than your own birth story. So you have to listen to her tell it over and over again. And uh, while the birth is the main event in the telling of the story that we're going to read this morning, the focus of the story is actually on the character of Joseph, this earthly father of Jesus. And the way that Joseph receives the news about Jesus' birth and what he does about it are the perfect mirror for us to consider the advent of Yeshua what the Lord saves actually means for us. We're going to see that God's greatest act of salvation, this Yeshua, comes as a complete surprise. No one was looking for it. And it shows us that God's ways are certainly not our ways. And so we're going to look at four different miracles. First, a misunderstood miracle, the miracle of a messenger, the miracle of Emmanuel, and the miracle of of a marriage. So let's read it right now in chapter 1 of Matthew, verse 18. And then we'll pray. Now the birth of Jesus Christ took place in this way. When his mother Mary had been betrothed to Joseph, before they came together, she was found to be with child from the Holy Spirit. And her husband Joseph, being a just man and unwilling to put her to shame, resolved to divorce her quietly. But as he considered these things, behold, an angel of the Lord appeared to him in a dream, saying, Joseph, son of David, do not fear to take Mary as your wife, for that which is conceived in her is from the Holy Spirit. She will bear a son, and you shall call his name Jesus." for he will save his people from their sins. All this took place to fulfill what the Lord had spoken by the prophet. Behold, the virgin shall conceive and bear a son, and they shall call his name Emmanuel, which means God with us. When Joseph woke from sleep, he did as the angel of the Lord commanded him. He took his wife, but knew her not until she had given birth to a son, and he called his name Jesus. Let's pray. Father, as we look into the significance of the name of your son, Jesus, this morning, we pray that these words would come alive in our hearts by the power of the Holy Spirit, just as it was the power of the Spirit that caused Jesus to be born in Mary. We pray that your Holy Spirit would cause your words to be born in our hearts this morning. We pray for anybody here, uh, Lord, who looks at this story and goes, what is going on that you would bring understanding? Lord, for those of us who this story is very familiar and kind of old hat, I pray that it would come alive in a new way for us by the power of your Holy Spirit and in your son Jesus' name we pray, amen. So we got a lot going on in this small story this morning. The first thing we need to sit with is the drama of this misunderstood miracle. And it is dramatic, 
right? You, you caught that. Mary and Joseph were betrothed, which is a word we don't really use anymore, but it was pretty much like as good as married. Not quite all the way married. They hadn't been like a final ceremony and they hadn't consummated their marriage, but it was also a stronger commitment than modern day like engagement, like fiancés. And as far as the law of their time was concerned back then, they were very much committed to each other in marriage. In verse 18, it says, before they came together, when, when Mary, when his mother Mary had been betrothed to Joseph, before they came together, she was found to be with child from the Holy Spirit. So saying before they came together indicates that they were just about ready to consummate the marriage. How close they were, it's impossible to know. But basically, Joseph thinks everything is fine. You know, he's going to get married. It's going to be great. And then he finds out this news. <laughs> She's having a baby, and no, it's not yours. Right? That's so awkward. So why does the gospel of Jesus begin on this scandalous note and with this very complex issue of the virgin birth, which for most people is a very difficult thing to stomach. And the story announces it in a very matter-of-fact way that this child in Mary's womb was from the Holy Spirit, which means God's Spirit, the same Spirit that the very first book of the Bible says was hovering over the face of the deep waters at the very creation of the world and who breathed life into all things. This is very hard to believe, and we have to acknowledge that. But we also have to ask, what is your starting point for whether you believe or disbelieve the virgin birth? If you believe that God created the world, if that's your starting point, if he created the world out of nothing but his words, shouldn't he have the authority to alter one of the biological processes he invented? If your starting point is, that's impossible, that's probably what you're going to end up with too. But if God did create this world, then a miracle is nothing more than a rapid, concentrated version of a process that God invented and that he baked into his creation from the very beginning, right? Water is turned into wine every day. It's a natural process. Wounds heal every day. Babies are conceived every day, and these are all miracles played out through processes that we now call natural. But God can expedite and rewire any of these processes at any rate or in any manner that he chooses, and the virgin birth, this miracle that we're looking at this morning, can really only be received by those who have also experienced another kind of birth through the Holy Spirit, and that is being born again. Both are done by the Holy Spirit. This text says that Jesus was conceived by the Holy Spirit, and we know that anybody only comes to faith in Jesus through the gift of faith by the Holy Spirit. The faith to believe in God and his work is not something that we conjure up from within. It is a gift. And an author, Frederick Dale Bruner, says this, every salvation is a virgin birth. It is the spirit of God creating life where there was no life. The spirit's work is making Jesus 
a living person inside human life. So one thing we have to notice off the bat is that this has to be one of the most unbelievable stories for anyone who does not claim to follow Jesus and even difficult for those of us who do. And it's important to acknowledge how unbelievable it seems, but one more thing is, why would you make up this interpersonal difficulty between Mary and Joseph, right? Why add that little marital conflict into the story? In another account of the birth of Jesus in the Gospel of Luke, it says that an angel actually appeared to Mary to explain how everything was going to happen. And if some, somebody was making this story all up, wouldn't they just have the angel appear to both of them at the same time and save like all of this conflict? The events following Joseph finding out about Mary's pregnancy provide an occasion for us reading it today to sit with Joseph at this point in the story after he receives the news and to put ourselves in his shoes when he hears the news, I'm having a baby and no, it's not yours. <laughs> like the first century version of Jerry Springer or something, right? Like what do you even do with that? What are the emotions like he's wrestling with? Probably fear or grief or just like confusion or anger. And no doubt she probably told him about this miraculous origin of the conception. Oh, don't worry. It wasn't some other guy. It was, it was the Holy Spirit, right? And just like the angel told her in the book of Luke, we have it here on the screen. It says, Mary said to the angel, how will this be since I'm a virgin? And the angel answered her, the Holy Spirit will come upon you and the power of the Most High will overshadow you. Therefore, the child to be born will be called Holy, the Son of God. And if only she could have just like pulled out her phone and said, could you say that again? My husband is not going to believe this, right? Just one more time, please. But that didn't happen. And in a fairy tale world, maybe Joseph would have said, wow, honey, that's such wonderful news. I'm glad you told me. But this is a true story. So what does Joseph do in response to this news? What all men do when their spouse confronts them with a problem, you fix it. <laughs> you try to fix it, right, guys? And Mary goes, I didn't ask you to fix it. And he's like, someone just got triggered just now. <laughs> it's too real, um, right? He starts to make plans. That's what happens. She tells him the news. And then in verse 19, he starts to make plans of how to fix it. Maybe from our perspective, sitting here 2,000 years later, we know the full story. We say, oh, you should have known, right? All of Israel's history is filled with miraculous childbirths, from Sarah having Isaac, to Rachel having Joseph, to Hannah having Samuel. But this is not the first thing that comes to your mind when you find out that your wife is pregnant with not your baby. So what does he do in verse 19? And her husband, Joseph, being a just man and unwilling to put her to shame, resolved to divorce her quietly. Clearly, Joseph did not believe whatever Mary told him about her pregnancy. And the Gospel of Luke tells us that she would have been about four months pregnant by this point. And my wife, who's a labor and delivery nurse, tells me that this is just about the time when it's not as easy to hide the baby bump anymore. <laughs> like, up until then, it might have been just like a food baby, but now it's like a baby baby. And you can't, you can't ignore it anymore. But Joseph thinks he's doing the righteous thing 
by trying to cover up what looks like her infidelity to him. And it's the right move by all accounts from his perspective. If they divorce quietly, then he won't have to deal with the humiliation and the shame. And it will actually save Mary's life. In those days, this whole thing would not have just been viewed as Mary, you know, sleeping with the wrong guy, having a lapse in judgment or something like that. But everybody would have looked at this pregnancy as infidelity that was punishable by execution. So according to their religious system, not only was Joseph doing a righteous thing, but by doing it quietly, he believed he had worked the whole thing out so that he could also protect Mary. He could save himself from shame and save Mary's life. But it is an attempt to save that did not belong to him. Saving is God's business. But God's salvation is often very difficult for us to understand. So God sends a messenger. Verse 20. But as he considered these things, behold, an angel of the Lord appeared to him in a dream, saying, Joseph, son of David, do not fear to take Mary as your wife, for that which is conceived in her is from the Holy Spirit. So we have this miracle of this messenger, this angel, and the intervention of the angel in Joseph's dream is such an important point for us to grasp. A cynical look at this story from the outside might look at it and say, wow, this guy was so upset that he invented a story about a miraculous birth so he wouldn't have to deal with the reality of his wife becoming pregnant through adultery. If you, if you think that right now, or if you have ever thought that, you're actually not alone. This is literally the story that was perpetuated about Joseph and his family through the entire Jewish community. Jesus was basically seen as, forgive me, but as a bastard child. And that's true even within the Jewish community today. In Israel today, still, most people don't even know that his Hebrew name is Yeshua. They call him Yeshu, which is an acronym which stands for, may his name and memory be erased. So the leaders of the religious Jewish community at that time were actually very glad that this myth about Mary's infidelity was what was being spread about the birth of this man, Jesus. But the facts of this story completely invalidate that as an option. This is not the convenient, delusional thinking of a desperate man. Actually, the vision of this angel could not be more inconvenient for him, right? It disrupts Joseph's incredibly rational plan to take care of the situation. Think about it. Joseph was on his way to execute this plan that would totally clear his name and save Mary's life, and no one would ever need to know. The angel's interruption in his dream is the last thing that he would have wanted to invent to try to make sense out of this situation. But it was the only thing that was going to prevent Joseph from trying to take matters into his own hands and save himself. How do we know this? 
is the angel says to him, what? Do not fear to take Mary as your wife. The plan that Joseph had hatched was out of fear for Mary's life and for his reputation. If he didn't take action, his family's reputation, their honor would have been completely ruined. And in their culture, honor and shame were the most important values possible. If your family had a mark of shame on it, good luck getting rid of that. It would have been ruined. So the religiously sensical option meant that he had to do something about it. But the news of this angel that was powerful enough to change Joseph's mind was not just this miraculous origin of the pregnancy. It was also the identity of the baby, of Yeshua, the Lord saves. Basically, God is saying, you are not going to save the situation. I will. Verse 21. She will bear a son, and you shall call his name Jesus, Yeshua, for he will save his people from their sins. So the announcement of Jesus' name is actually a beautiful word play that's going on, but it's lost in translation because it's going on in Hebrew. The angel says, you shall call his name Yeshua because he will, Hoshia, save his people. And there's a couple things going on here. First, the meaning of the name, as we said, is literally the Lord saves. But then the angel says, because he himself will save his people. In this simple pronouncement of Jesus' name, the angel is revealing that this little baby growing inside Mary's womb is somehow the Lord himself. And that is the beauty behind the name Jesus. You, you get both his divinity and his humanity wrapped up in one word. You have the Lord saves and Josh, the Jewish kid from Bethlehem, right? Biggest name possible, the Lord saves his people and the most common name in ancient Israel, which is great news. And it shows us exactly who Jesus is. But then the angel goes on and finishes the sentence with what? He will save his people from their sins. And if you think that that is a dirty word, or if you're confused by that, so was everybody else in the first century. For most people, when you talk about Jesus today, it's all smiles and nods until you get to this word of sin. But without it, apparently we misunderstand everything that Jesus came to do. One comfort that we can take is that it would be just as confusing and surprising to the first century Jewish audience as it is to modern people. We sometimes think it might have been easier for them to understand religious concepts, but it's not. It would have been just as offensive to their sensibilities. They would have thought, save us from our what? Our sins? Are you kidding me? Our whole nation is under occupation by a Roman empire, and you want to save us from our sins? Give me a break. Israel's hope had been in the coming of a savior for hundreds of years. 
And the more their troubles had grown politically, being conquered by empire after empire, the more they came to expect that this savior would be a political and military leader that would overthrow the Roman Empire. Oh, but you're telling me it's a baby. And he's not going to save us from Rome. He's, he's going to save us from our sins. Okay, right. <laughs> and for us modern people, the idea that we need to be saved from sin is offensive simply because we don't agree that it's anyone else's business to tell us what is sin and what is not. Right? How dare you suggest that the way I'm living my life should be considered sin? But sin is not a word that religious people invented to control people. <laughs> it is a word, a powerful word that labels and calls out the spiritual slavery that all find ourselves in because we've given control of our lives over to someone other than our creator who loves us and knows us more deeply than we know ourselves. Sin is a subtle slavery that affects all dimensions of life, not just spiritual, but social, psychological, and also physical. And we need more than some kind of self-help manual to free us from this degree of slavery. We need a savior. But to be saved from sin means we also have to acknowledge our sin. And for Joseph, it meant that the restoration of his honor for his family needed that he needed for him to walk in his shame. And ultimately for Jesus himself, it meant humiliation. First, in the eternal son of God becoming a human at all, receiving a human name to deal with human problems giving up his honor to take on our shame so we receive the honor that belonged to him to begin with. Listen, the way that God chose to deal with our sin was not to pretend it doesn't exist and also not to smite us for it. He decided to become it. As the Apostle Paul says in the New Testament book of 2 Corinthians, he says, God made him who had no sin, to be sin for us, so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. Jesus was humbled to become and receive our sin and take it on himself so that we can receive his honor. But more on that later. Right now, we have to understand where the angel goes from here and where the, the writer, Matthew, pulls from to explain all of the stuff that was going on with this announcement of Jesus's name, which is our third miracle, the miracle of Emmanuel. Matthew tells us that all of this, this virgin birth and conception was not some random like superhero origin story, right? Like Peter Parker was just a nerd from Queens and then he got beaten, eaten by a radioactive spider, right, and became Spider-Man. No, the virgin conception of Jesus is not some fancy supernatural myth that his followers invented to make it sound more interesting. It is a part of God's larger story that he has been telling since the very beginning of time. And this specific episode, this virgin conception, is something that had been in the works for hundreds of years. Verse 22, 
all this took place to fulfill what the Lord had spoken by the prophet. Behold, the virgin shall conceive and bear a son, and they shall call his name Emmanuel, which means God with us. To appreciate what's going on here, we have to go back to the story from the book of Isaiah in the Hebrew Bible where this quote was taken from. And in the Jewish community today, there's actually a lot of controversy about this passage. Most of you know that I I work with an organization called Jews for Jesus, and what we spend our time doing is talking to Jewish people about Jesus, the fact that he is the Jewish Messiah. And so we spend a lot of our time talking about passages like this, passages from the Hebrew Bible that speak of this Messiah, this Savior who was yet to come. And this is one of the most common ones that we go to every year when we're talking about Christmas. But there's a lot of controversy. And if I were to quote this to someone from the Jewish community who knew their Bible, they would probably argue that this verse was completely taken out of context. That Matthew is just cherry-picking this verse out of the Old Testament and saying, oh, isn't that nice, virgin? It fits perfectly. (laughs) First, many would say that the word in Hebrew for virgin doesn't even mean that, that it means just young lady. And second, they would say that this phrase, Emmanuel, is not even talking about God physically being present with his people, but rather being on our side or like on our team. And they would also say that this prophecy that Isaiah was talking about had already been fulfilled hundreds of years before the time of Jesus by the birth of Isaiah's own son. And we don't have to get into the nuances of how the New Testament quotes the Old Testament or the nature of biblical prophecy and fulfillment or the etymological nuances of the Hebrew word for young woman. It all has to do with how you look at the story with the eyes of faith and whether or not your eyes have been opened by the Holy Spirit to see that it is true. And suffice it to say that uh, this passage gets a lot of uh, airplay when I'm talking with Jewish people about whether or not Jesus is the Messiah. And Jews for Jesus has produced a lot of literature about why this is a very legitimate reading of this passage. So if you're still curious about some of the nuances of it, you can talk to me about it later. But the real lesson for us today is not just in the legitimate fulfillment of this specific promise of the virgin birth, but also in the context of the story that surrounds it, which we're going to read together in the book of Isaiah, chapter 7, verse 10. It says, Again, the Lord spoke to Ahaz, who is king in Judah, Ask a sign of the Lord your God. Let it be as deep as the grave or as high as heaven. But Ahaz said, I will not ask, and I will not put the Lord to the test. And he said, Hear then, O house of David, is it too little for you to weary men that you weary my God also? Therefore the Lord himself will give you a sign. Behold, the virgin shall conceive and give you a son and shall call his name Emmanuel. He shall eat curds and honey when he knows how to refuse the evil and choose the good. For before the boy knows how to refuse the evil and choose the good, The land whose two kings you dread will be deserted. 
the Lord will bring upon you and upon your people and upon your father's house such days as have not come since the day that Ephraim departed from Judah. He will bring the king of Assyria. This is a confusing passage, right? You just read the virgin part and you say, oh, that's so nice. It's talking about Jesus. But what's all this other stuff talking about? In the context of this story, Emmanuel, God with us, is actually not talking about salvation at all. It's talking about judgment. In this story, God is using the king of Assyria to judge the nation of Judah because King Ahaz decided not to trust in God, but actually made an alliance with the king of Assyria, this other empire, to fight off an attack from two other enemy kingdoms. So God uses the very means by which King Ahaz decides to save himself to judge them. And this story actually mirrors our story with Joseph and Mary in several ways. Isaiah tells King Ahaz to ask for a sign that is as high as heaven or as low as the grave. Basically, hey, ask a sign from God that will be as unbelievable as possible so then you'll know that it was God who was doing it, like the virgin birth, right? Next, King Ahaz is confronted with an unbelievable situation and told that it was God's doing but he actually decides to take matters into his own hands and tries to save himself, much like Joseph. He tries to disrupt God's plan of salvation in favor of his own. So when Isaiah speaks about Emmanuel in this way, no one actually believes it. And when it finally happens, when this king of Assyria who King Ahaz tried to use to save Israel, actually turns on Israel and attacks the city of Jerusalem, no one makes the connection to what Isaiah had said was going to happen. He said, I told you this was going to happen. No one could possibly conceive that this was actually something God was doing. And in the very next chapter, Isaiah calls this reality a stone of offense and a rock of stumbling. The fact that God would do this was offensive. It was as difficult for them to believe back then as it would be for the first century Jewish community to believe that Jesus was supposed to be saving them from their sins by dying on a cross rather than overthrowing their enemies. God's salvation does not make sense to us quite often. And we don't want the solution to our problems to be something that is this difficult to understand. But most of us don't understand God's solution because we also don't understand the problem. As we said before, the problem of sin is that it blinds us to its effects in our lives. It goes deeper than we can know. And we think that admitting to our sins somehow means that we're enslaved to some ancient religious ideas, but it's actually our sin that enslaves. And Jesus came to die for those sins. That is what his name means. And not just the sins that we can see and understand, he also died for the sins that you don't know about or the ones that you even disagree with being sin in the first place. But if we go on denying that we have sin, we cannot receive 
his gift of salvation. And that is what we need the most. And that is what Joseph needed the most in this story. And it is what he was able to receive. Read with me again in Matthew chapter 1, verse 24. When Joseph woke from sleep, he did as the angel of the Lord commanded him. He took his wife, but knew her not until she had given birth to a son, and he called his name Jesus. So there's one more miracle left in the story. The last miracle is of their marriage. (laughs) The fact that their marriage survived this trial, when Joseph had a plan to get rid of the whole situation and was interrupted by this plan of salvation in the form of this angel's announcement, their marriage was saved. And it's always a miracle when people are married, when two are joined together to make one. But in this case, their marriage was tested before it was even started and was miraculously saved, not just by this angel's news, but also by Joseph's response of faith. He received the gift of Yeshua. He could have woken up and said, man, that was one crazy dream, (laughs) right? But he chose to trust that this was salvation, that this was God's plan, not just for his family, but for the entire world. And it was not an easy choice. Joseph and his family would have to live with the consequences of his choice to trust the angel's news for the rest of their lives. They would bear the shame of people's sideways glances and pity, people who never believed that this story was true and assumed that Jesus was an illegitimate child. But he didn't care. He knew that it was true. And I have to imagine that for some of us, telling our coworkers or our family or our friends that we actually believe this news, that we actually believe that this Jesus was born to a virgin 2,000 years ago and that that is the hope of the world, the salvation of their sins from this baby, we are risking a lot. Our reputation is at stake What are we going to do about it? I can imagine for a lot of us, for myself included, there are a lot of situations in our lives that we are trying to control out of fear as well, just like Joseph. Oh, I I don't really have to tell this person everything about what I believe about this. I could just celebrate Christmas and, you know, buy people gifts and hang the stockings and stuff like that and not really talk about what it means. But the Lord wants to enter into your life this Christmas just in the same way that he entered into the life of Mary and Joseph 2,000 years ago. So the question for us is, what kind of intervention is God trying to speak to us that causes us to look at our life and our decisions in a new way, not in a way that makes sense or is immediately safe or culturally acceptable? What decisions could he be calling you to where maybe your source of honor and security is at stake? Where instead of trying to save face and protect your own reputation, 
you rest in being misunderstood for his glory. We've been talking about this for the past few weeks in the book of 1 Peter as we live in this identity as exiles, what it means to live as exiles where our lives chafe against the expectation of others and disrupt the paradigms of who we're supposed to be as people in the 21st century, what our lives are supposed to look like, and how we respond to the cultural pressure of cynicism and unbelief. We need to receive this gift of Yeshua in the same way that Joseph did. But to be saved means not being in control. It means losing control. And it means really admitting that we never had it in the first place. To be saved by this infant savior means not trying to do anything that would subvert God's plan to save you. What did Joseph actually do differently when he learned the news about Mary's conception. Nothing different. (laughs) He got married. He was able to receive the gift. And this is offensive to some of us because we think that salvation means that we have to do something to earn it. There must be something extra for us to do to fix our situation once we understand that we have sinned. But it is no more than receiving a gift. And it is a gift that God disrupted the natural order of the universe to give us. Unwrapping this original Christmas present is such a simple thing that God is asking us to do. But it's the hardest thing for those of us who will not humble ourselves to see our deep need to be saved from our sin. God will save those only who admit that they can't save themselves. And the scandal of the Christmas story is that in order to save us, God had to become one of us. The author wrote himself into the story. It's not a very spiritual thing to imagine celebrating a God who is laying in a feeding trough in a stinking barn in first century Bethlehem. But this is the true story. This is the glory of this story. God's salvation does not play by our rules. He cannot be confined to our expectations, and he won't be limited to our understanding. His plan and his love for us do not take our sensibilities into consideration, thankfully. To receive this gift of Jesus, we must be willing to pay the price of being humbled and possibly even bearing shame, just as he has humbled himself and took our shame. Jesus did not just appear to be a human. He was really born to a real woman 2,000 years ago. And in Jesus, we see that God came all the way down to the lowest and most vulnerable point of human existence. Why? Because he loves you. Because he loves me. How much further down does God have to go to convince you? You might have different terms. However far you think that might be, he went even lower. He lived an obscure life until his adulthood when he was tried as a criminal. And though he was innocent, he was shamed and beaten and murdered. And he went all the way down into death itself for us. But after being humiliated and shamed, he rose in three days, proving that all of it 
was worth it. He was vindicated. He really did save us from our sins. And it started with this birth 2,000 years ago. Let's receive that gift this morning. Pray with me.